Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan. And I'm Chad. And today you're joining us for a conversation with Jason Pargin, author of John Dies at the End, Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick, and the newest addition to the Zoe Ash series, Zoe is Too Drunk for This Dystopia, which releases on Halloween really, really soon. Jason, thank you so much for coming back on to Book Reviews Kill. Something I got to get out of the way right off the the top because it's going to come up during the recording. So I just want to approach it right now. So I have changed my microphone setup. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, like I normally would have it sitting on the desk in front of me. And now I have it on like a robot arm thing coming in from the side. Please understand everyone listening to this. I gesticulate with my hands when I talk. I'm not used to having this robot arm here. That means that at some point during the recording of this show, I will accidentally gesticulate with my left hand, catch this robot arm, and launch my microphone across the room, probably sitting it crashing through a window. You're going to hear that noise. Now, it's a very important. Some of you listening are going to think that's very, very funny. It's not. This microphone costs. <laughs> no, oh, this is the first expensive microphone I've ever owned. And it's also worse than my previous microphone, but it, it will it will be an extremely sad and upsetting moment for me. And I will probably you'll hear me faintly screaming in the background in rage as I try to fish my microphone off the line. Oh, that's too bad. I got to see this little like arm right here in the corner. I know everyone listening can't see, but I can see uh, Jason's face and he can see mine. I've got this same thing with this robot arm and I knock it off all the time. It's so unfortunate. And I have a really nice sensitive microphone as well. So it is uh, certainly a stab to the heart every time. There's springs on. I think Chad and I have the same brand and there's springs uh-huh. here. And every time I gesticulate as well, it's got it's got that nice little spring sound to it. And when I'm <laughs> editing, it's really bad if I animated while I'm talking and the spring is right there with my words so i can't edit it out so our listeners are definitely familiar with the spring sound i think but maybe not the crashing through the window so it's such a hardship because if you go to buy the stuff off the shelf if you go to someplace like best buy they they see you in the podcaster aisle buying stuff and they're all like snickering to each other like all the teenage girls like look at that podcaster and i have to explain i do not have a podcast i appear on other people's shows don't don't lump me in with with all that. Yes, I have all of the stuff, and I'm on a show twice a week, but still, uh, it is a I curse can, to be in that group. Yeah. You don't want to be lumped in with this rabble. No, no, the relentless yeah. snickers of twelve year old women really tears you down after a few weeks. Let me tell you, <laughs> we are just entertaining ourselves here, and some people are along for the ride, and we really appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so every time I have uh, or we have a guest on this podcast, I always ask the same first question, and, and I asked it of you last time, but I'm really curious: What are you reading right now? I have bought many, many books, uh, <laughs> and I have started. I started a uh, Blood Meridian, uh, which is magical, but also ooh, a challenging read if you are in the middle of doing a billion other things in your life. Like I'm in the point because I'm at this time of year. I am promoting one book. And then trying to finish the next book at the same time. So like this has to be turned in at the same time the other one releases. So then in my spare time, when I'm reading, if I'm reading something that is that requires you to kind of stop and ingest sentences and meaning and symbolism, uh, not ideal. So I also have uh, most of the Martha Wells Murderbot Diary books, which are a lot of fun, very short. And then every time one of my friends or or a 
creator that I follow on TikTok or somewhere, every time they release a book, I immediately buy it or I pre-order it and it comes in. Someday I will read them. I, I'm not avoiding reading them, but the number of books I buy versus the number of books I finish, the ratio is pretty shameful. Like I, I want to support them that I am like eight or nine years behind on my reading. So my Kindle has many, many books on it. It is stunning how few of them I actually read through and, and finish. I read the beginnings of lots of books. I, f I feel the pain of not having them uh, or having them on the shelf and not reading them. Before the podcast, I had was proudly saying that I could have read every book on my bookshelf. Now our lovely listeners send me books, which I love, but I just can't keep up with all of them. So that is not the case by a long shot anymore. When you're in this mode that you're in right now, which is, you know, you're you're putting revisions to another book while you're also promoting another book, you've got a lot of your own words on your mind so often, uh, even when you're not staring at them on your computer screen, but then there's the actual real sit down, stare at your own work kind of work that you're doing, where you're kind of picking apart sentences and sequences of events and scenes and characters and things like that. Do you find that when you sit down to read other people's work, that's kind of bleeding over and you're you find yourself saying like oh weird that you would have a passive voice right there you know martha wells like why did you pick that word instead of this word or do you find yourself kind of hypercritical or does that not happen i'm not critical like that but i do get to a place where i can sense what the author is doing or where the story is going not because i'm a genius but just because I've been reading since I was six years old and have read a billion books. And then I've written, you know, several books and many other stories that people are never going to see. I spend tons and tons and tons of time thinking about stories and storytelling and story structure, things like that. So if I get a third of the way through a book and I can sense what they're doing and what they're laying out, I can find myself getting very, very bored with it. So yeah. like <laughs> that is not a thing that occurs when reading Blood Meridian. Where it's like, oh, it's it's another one of these, you know. Oh, I, yeah, I've read, if I've read one standard over here, yeah, he just <laughs> stamps these things out. It's uh, it's like, no, I generally do not know what's going to happen next. But the stuff, because I read a lot of genre fiction, uh, you know, that's what I grew up on. That's what I write. So it, the, and a lot of that, it, when I say it's formulaic, that's not even a criticism necessarily i think the authors themselves would tell you yeah there's a formula to this people have been telling these stories for ten thousand years yes there's a right. formula but if it's a book where i can tell what they're they're setting something up and i kind of can sense where it's going i will find myself skimming ahead or whatever because it's kind of like the surprise isn't there but again it's not because i'm smarter than the author or other readers it's just because from if you are from the side of writing things you're just you spend so much time thinking about it that you know if you i'm sure if a cook went to a restaurant or a chef went to a restaurant they'd be like oh they've over peppered the sauce uh it, you know it doesn't mean that you're better than everyone there it's just that you you kind of can sense what they did or what they were going for and it does ruin a lot of reading for me but i never read stuff like an editor Unless it's like really bad, but even then that would just be like as a fan, like I, cause I could have been in high school and reading some terrible horror novel, horror paperback I picked up at the drugstore and, you know, and said, oh, this is, this is stupid with, you know, these characters are doing doesn't make any sense that that's not coming at it from 
well, I, master storyteller, would not have done that. It's just coming <laughs> at it from, you know, as a fan, as somebody who's read a bunch. Right. And like there's the like you said, there's the order that every story, you, if you know and so familiar with like the exposition, the conflict, the rising, you're like, OK, we're just going to skip on here. If you kind of have a little bit of uh, foot in the game for on the experience of writing side, I can see how that might get kind of boring on some books. <laughs> like, OK, I've totally done that before. And uh, like, you know, I'm like, oh, this is a fight scene. I kind of OK, we'll just see who wins the fight scene or whatever. And then but then so obviously sometimes something really really in, something something like really important will happen in that fight scene and then that they're talking about later and i'm like oh damn it i gotta go right back and read that that one sentence that was like so now yeah for the most part i try not to skim uh i seems my fave <laughs> uh, okay jason i have a question um so i've read all of your john dies series i I've read all of the zoe ash books and this one uh zoe is too drunk for this dystopia tell me about it i haven't read it i don't know anything about it is it a continuation of the story is there a time gap or i guess tell me what you're comfortable with telling me about it without you know giving any spoilers away well people unfamiliar with the zoe series they're episodic they each stand as their own book they don't leave off in a cliffhanger it's not serialized so this is another episode they obviously are better when read in order but you in theory could just read book two and it would be if I've done it right, would be a satisfying experience. It explains who everybody is and it wraps itself up. It doesn't end with, there's a knock at the door. She opened it. She gasped, come back in three years to find out who was at <laughs> the door. Years. Yeah. You uh, stand alone for sure. Yeah. So here it takes place a few months later and it is a series, a confluence of a whole bunch of things happening in this futuristic city where there is a huge music festival in town, there's a local election going on, and a series of chaotic things that, from the very first page, you get the sense of someone who is overwhelmed. And this is a story about someone who is reaching the age where, and a phase in her life where she realizes she actually is not in control of almost anything. And I feel like I was trying to capture a sensation that lots of us felt over the last few years. Uh, and But it is, if you know the series, it unspools in a very ridiculous and chaotic fashion. Uh, yeah, I don't think you could say differently about any of the any of your books, period, or at least with the John Dyes and the Zoe, but especially the Zoe Ash, they're... Uh... Like futuristic violence and fantasy and fancy suits was such an excellent name for that book, I thought, because it just explained it so well by telling you nothing. It told you everything kind of, which is um, it was just clever. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And there's like an inch joke in that book where in the future they name movies just by what's in them. Like instead of coming up with like a clever name, they just kind of tell you what's what happens in the movie. It's like a series of cool fight scenes and it's just like they have like generic titles so that the novel is self-referential in that in that fashion because it's like yeah it's futuristic totally. violence and, and men in, in fancy suits it's interesting that you're bringing up kind of uh writing with regard to the kind of general consensus or, or i guess general feeling of anxiety and kind of disorder and uh, unpredictability over the last few years um I mean, do you think that um you Obviously, like the, this book that you've written is kind of echoing a lot of that sentiment. But do you think that when we look back in like 10, 15, 20 years at this period in literature, we're going to see kind of like this big influx of books like that, like books where 
that are kind of reflective of the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of like the kind of unrest and unknown that's going on right now. Yeah, but you can do that with any era. And I feel like that right. is something that's really lost when people watch old or old watch old movies, old TV shows, read old books from the 70s, 80s. If you aren't cognizant of like a lot of 80s action movies, if you're not aware of what the Reagan era was like hmm. and what the atmosphere was like and what the feeling was like around the Cold War and around crime, the, the panic of crime in the 70s and 80s was sky high. And the drug ep epidemic was becoming a thing. If you're trying to watch a movie like RoboCop or anything from that era or or even Ghostbusters, there's all these themes in there that have to seem weird now because it's like anti-EPA and like anti-environmental regulations. And it's, it's like, well, that's yeah. kind of out of it. It's like, no, you got to understand that was 1984. That was the Reagan era. It was a totally different, like Hollywood was right wing back then. Like it's, right. it was a totally, it was a totally different time. I feel like you have to keep that in mind when consuming anything from any era, especially if it's ideas or it's language or it's tone seems out of step with the present. If you're not understanding where the world was in 2022 or whatever, if you're trying to read this 10 or 15 years from now, you're not going to you're not going to get it. But it's the same thing. If you read some old Stephen King novel from the 70s and some of the sentiment in there, and it's like, well, gosh, why were they thinking? I, I cannot emphasize as somebody who grew up in the 80s. I was born in 1975. It was a different world. <laughs> and we are right. moving from different worlds to different worlds. So you're going to see, for example, it's not just the pandemic stuff, but there's all of the stuff about where people have tried to shoehorn in like political controversy stuff and about, mm. oh, I ran into some woke liberals or whatever. Like 20 years from now, is that word even still going to mean anything? And so much of it is just so much of the moment that it's fascinating to see what art survives than what doesn't because something like robocop i felt like found a way to become timeless because it's about themes that are timeless but at the time it was about the 80s like it was hardcore like 80s satire right yeah like you can't really watch like something like blazing saddles through the eyes of 23 you know and i don't know if that's going to survive the test of time um i mean it's so relevant enough to talk about on this podcast but like i mean i watched blazing saddles a couple years ago and i was just like man like this is not that funny but i mean like obviously I mean, it, was it wasn't rough. it wasn't bad but it was just like i actually prefer young frankenstein i think that's like the me too that's way like better the, the jam but anyway but like with blazing saddles it's like there were people falling out of their chairs that had to probably like leave the theater during that fart right. scene because like nobody had ever seen that before you know and now it's like pretty and everything about the the racial politics of the movie all of that you have no idea how many lines it was crossing and how cathartic it was at that time. Now, it doesn't right. come across now, but th there's a lot of, especially with comedy, because comedy, so much of comedy is supposed to be about releasing this tension. Like we have this tension in society. There's something we're all afraid to say. And so we're going to skewer some sacred cow. Well, those weren't the same sacred cows. So it's like, the jokes seem hacky now. It's like, well, yeah, because that joke has been safe to tell for 45 years. At the time, it wasn't. And so when that's the purpose of comedy and society. So you hear somebody say it, it's like, we've all been thinking this, and it's such a release. And everything about, you know, the whole central plot about, about the black sheriff and all of that, 
you have no idea how cutting edge that was at the time. You can't recreate it. You can't. Re- that's the dumb thing about trying to remake so many of these movies. It's like you're you don't understand what you're remaking. Hmm. Well, I've never thought about it. Like I've never thought about it quite like that before, where a lot of these remakes might not be working because it's not carrying over the same context as it had before. That's, and you can't carry it. That's a really, that's a really smart idea. (laughs) Like, of course not. We were talking about comedy and especially with, um, with regard to writing comedy. Um, I mean, your books are hilarious. Like they're, they're very funny. They're also rooted in a lot of, um, I would call maybe a little bit of cosmic horror, a little bit of existential horror. Uh, and, and I'm using, I'm using the term horror pretty loosely here, but I'm curious, like when you're, penning this stuff when you're thinking of these ideas and how to sequence everything and what you're really trying to say i mean are you kind of leading in with some of the maybe more dark or more existential thoughts that you have and then is is comedy kind of like a release from those kinds of thoughts like is it used deliberately yeah i'm just kind of curious about your process behind that yeah because it's comedy is just a coping mechanism and and it's mind and so because that's the only way i know how to write that is the character's coping mechanism too so in the john dies at the end series you have people confronting you know again cosmic horror is all about encountering the unknown and finding out that there are these powerful beings out there that you don't understand you can't possibly understand and you know, confronting the unknown, like that's partly what humor is for, is that it's a way to cope with everything in your life that you don't have control over, because you can just say, well, this is, I'm going to laugh at the absurdity of it all. So part of what people like about that series is that it is taking that to an absolute extreme, where you're confronting horrors that are beyond the imagination, but the characters are still just in a state of well, this is this is also extremely stupid. What's happening right it's now? It's almost inconvenient and, to them. Right? <laughs> it's just, I love it. And so it is. The more you can draw that contrast, the better off you'll be. Now, today, I feel like there's lots of, uh, like I didn't invent that genre, but there's lots of that in the world now. Um, but it at the time, I think it was a little bit more more unique. Yeah, I agree that the juxtaposition between um horrific and hilarious in your book is um pretty tasty and in, and in my opinion very cleverly done okay so one thing i really really enjoyed about the zoe ash series is um, not only the city of tabula rasa with the s being a dollar sign if i got that correct yeah. cool uh well, that city was full of really awesome technology and i really like that you go out of your way to add in like very fringe edge tech that could be real but probably isn't maybe will be one day did you can we expect more few questions within this can you can we expect more tech awesomeness in this book like new stuff and then i also i want to know about like your process of do you make new tech items on your when you're like lying there in bed and then throw them in the story or do you make them up as you're writing the story and then like oh i need a tech item for this spice to throw in the story there there's some science fiction that's all about the tech where it's people who just love reading about specific uh, technology and how it works and the history of it and all that. That's not my thing. The, no. the technology here, it's all about how it affects the people and the plot and how it affects human psychology. So for people that have not read these books, their version of the internet in the future is basically everyone has like a tiny little camera that they 
pinned to their bodies because cameras are, you know, like the size of a button and they just stream their lives 24 hours a day. So then their internet is just this universe of live streams. You basically have a God's eye view of the world where anything that's happening, you can just hop into anybody's feed. So every car has a dash cam. There's cameras mounted everywhere. There are drones with cameras. Everybody has a camera pinned to their body. So if there's like a mass shooting in a public place, you can go hop from feed to feed to feed, watching it happen from anybody's point of view. So part of what these stories are about is like, well, how does that affect the psychology of people knowing that you are on camera the moment you step outside your door all the time? Right. And you could say, well, in theory, you could be on camera today anytime you step outside the door. But still, you generally will still have a private conversation at a restaurant. Right. You're not still by not every afraid. member of the public. Yeah, you, you don't you actually are not assuming that you're being recorded. You you still think of yourself as having privacy, but this is a world where it is fully there's now a generation of people who have grown up being on camera all the time. So how do you behave when you know that every conversation is a public performance for potentially a worldwide audience? And so everything about <laughs> The way you have to live your life now, where you have to turn your personality into a brand or an aesthetic, where everything you say has to be calculated and measured and and you know con- and being conscious of how it can be taken and interpreted, it's all that amped up to a ridiculous degree. And that's where a lot of the comedy comes from, because you have these people who have built very silly, over-the-top brands for themselves. And in some cases, these are very, very dangerous people, but they're also ridiculous because there is nothing more ridiculous than somebody who is trying to turn themselves into a viral sensation 24 hours a day. They want to be an influencer. They, they're they a criminal or a hitman or a bounty hunter, but they want to be an influencer. And so they're trying to like come up with a name for their fandom and all that stuff. See, that's totally. like that's what I'm talking about, those, those kind of really in line with my last question and and i'm so glad that you just said all that too because like the idea of every oh my god just when you were talking about it i was like that's like the worst thing i've ever heard of (laughs) and i'm on the internet all the time my face is plastered all over book talk and stuff but still like I, i was thinking about like my walk from whole foods earlier today to my house and that was a nice walk you know the weather was nice i was just by myself listening to music but if like anybody had seen me doing that i would be appalled that anybody had like watched me just without my consent and like knowledge and like uh is that what you think the direction of the internet is headed jason do you think that will kind of be a reality or at least one sounds like a fear or it sounds like a, yeah oh, it's a fear oh, of mine yeah yeah <laughs> well but for example when i the first book i wrote in the series came out in 2015 so that was before the ring doorbell cameras came on the market oh, yeah. like when i was writing the book like they came out right as so like i came up with this idea before everybody suddenly had a camera pinned to the front of their house mm-hmm. to where now you have a social network of these ring doorbells where you can hop from house to house to house. It's like, Oh, this guy stole my package. The next door neighbor has him on their camera heading down the sidewalk and across the street on their camera. And this guy has a Tesla in his driveway and the Tesla's camera picked him up. Like (laughs) we're building it as we speak because people want that. They want to be able to watch. They want to know everything, watch everything. 
And then the concept of like people just streaming their real lives instead of streaming some sort of an activity or an action where it's just, I'm, you know, there's a guy on TikTok who just pins a camera to his body and does construction on his house for six or seven hours in a row. And that's it. He's just streaming himself at his workday. There's a window cleaner who does the same thing. Like all their whole thing is they're just sticking a camera on their body and filming their workday. Yeah, I, mean, I watched a crane operator for off. hours one day. <laughs> Yeah, so the only limitation is in bandwidth, the size of the cameras, battery life, like things like that. As the technology comes along, like in much the same way, the, the invention of smartphones and then data plans that where people could afford to stream video, like that's all it took for suddenly everybody to, you know, be able to watch a live stream on the bus on their way way to work. Like that wasn't possible 15 years ago. That technically oh, wasn't no. possible. So you're just waiting for the data to get cheap enough, the batteries to get small enough, the cameras to get small enough to where, uh, yeah, you're, you know, you could just, if you've got the popular kid in your high school, you can just inhabit their life and and listen to their cool, interesting conversations. And wow. if there's a fight somewhere, you can immediately hop into it and watch it from any point of view, including from the participants. This desire to know everything everybody is doing and saying and thinking at all times and just to be we're all super curious and we're all voyeuristic uh but the other end of it is that you also are eventually going to be part of part of the show yeah i mean do you think that um if we if i mean it's I mean, we are kind of trending in that direction i mean like do you Absolutely. think that at a certain point we might cross the line and or maybe we already have into it being kind of like an expectation of people to show a lot of themselves on the internet like i don't know if we're quite there yet like it's not socially um you know looked down on to not stream yourself all the time but i feel like there is a little bit of like oh you don't have an instagram you don't have a like some groups love that though yeah there's always the, the exception to the rule but i would i would imagine like among a lot of the younger people and a lot of people that are um, kind of engaged uh, professionally with the internet um, there is a lot of that already totally. and i'm wondering like do you think we might cross a line where <sighs> it's scary to think <laughs> like i'm actually kind of scared about that idea um where it would be expected of people i don't know and the thing is keep in mind no science fiction is trying to predict the future right. yeah all sci-fi is about the present it's mm -hmm. just saying imagine if we kept going this direction what it could look like right. So, for example, if you had gone back to the 1960s during the sexual revolution and, you know, and asked old people, well, what do you think it's going to be like 60 years from now? They would think, oh, the world's just going to be nonstop orgies on every street corner. And it's like, no, actually, young people have <laughs> yeah. stopped having sex, like birth rates have fallen because they've stopped having sex with each other. Like they would be they would never have been able to predict that curveball because that's how history works it's not just a straight line in one direction there could be a massive rebellion against this invasion of privacy against living in public you know the, the trend can reverse at any time these books are about like imagine a world where this has been taken to the maximum because right now the way i see it the deal that social media has made with us is that if you don't particularly have you know a lot of money you don't have a lot of prospects for making a lot of money or necessarily owning a home that you can be paid in 
likes and influence and internet friends. Like this is like people will do this as their full-time job, not in exchange for any money, but just in exchange for clout, in exchange for followers, in exchange for likes and attention. And they built this economy of basically where this is your now your job is to present yourself, to pr- make your life into content and you'll get paid in likes or whatever. So I think it gets ingrained that my self-worth, where some people, their self-worth is tied up in their income, where my self-worth is tied up in my social media cloud to how many followers I have, where you're just always competing with someone. And if you drop out, it's the equivalent of someone being just extremely poor because it implies that you're not interesting. You're not unique. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like social interesting credit. about you. Yeah, there's nothing interesting about your life. And so you're not worth caring about because you, you're you not entertaining, which, of course, mm. is madness. Right. Human lives are not intended to be entertaining. We're not entertainers. We're just normal people. Like, my lunch shouldn't have to be entertaining to look at. Well, you're not a Instagram, podcaster, so you don't know the life. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but on it's Instagram, like a... it's like... No, my lunch has to have an aesthetic. It has to look like something. It's like that's madness. You, you're not you're not a, a journalist working for a food magazine. You're just a normal person. But they have made it so that normal people need their their brunch to look a certain way because they're going to have to photograph it because they haven't. They feel an obligation to post. Like if they don't post for a few days, they do a post apologizing for not posting, as if you owe those people something. As I've if done that. They're your yeah. employers. Well, I mean, while we're on the subject, I, I was meaning to ask you, I mean, when we had you on here last time, you were posting on TikTok and Instagram and stuff. Um, and it, by no means did you not have a grasp on it. Obviously, you did. Uh, your your follower count wasn't super high. It was relatively high. I think it was at 20,000 on TikTok. Yeah, it was relatively high. But now you have ballooned up to, where, what are you at on TikTok now? Like hundreds uh, of thousands of followers. 330,000. Yeah, you really got up right pretty, pretty quickly. How do you but feel see, about this that? Is... Well, okay. I'm someone who wrote under an anonymous pseudonym for the first six or seven years I was writing because I did I did not put my face on the internet. I did not put my real voice on the internet until like 2007. Keep I, mind, I started, yeah, I started in the late 90s, and so when I was signing off these stories, I would just sign it as the main character, like like he wrote it. Um. But then at, once I got a job in the industry, I had to actually you know, put my real name out there. But even then, I resisted putting my face out there. They asked me to be on the podcast, I think, in 2010. I think that was the first time I put my voice on the internet, but still did not put my face on it. I did not appear in videos. I did not do any of that. I did not desire to do any of that. I wanted the writing to exist as its own thing. Like If I could have kept just writing under a various fake names, I would have done that but you can't. That's not how it works. You have to have a single, like your name as an author has to become a brand that people trust because otherwise you're having to sell the book from scratch every time. But if I could have kept myself removed from the authorship of, of the, the work, I would have done it forever. I, I don't, I want the work to get famous. I don't want myself as an individual to be perceived and scrutinized by strangers that's not what i signed up for but uh the social media era came to get engagement to get traction and you have to do that if you're going to be an author you have to have some sort of a platform where you can sell books there's no way to reach people otherwise you don't have enough money 
to buy ads to reach people. You have to have yeah. a following somewhere. So to build up a following on, and I have accounts on all of them. I still have my old Facebook fan pages. I actually have three of them. I've got a YouTube now. I've got an Instagram. I have Twitter. It will be uh, linked in the description below. Yeah, uh, and I've just got a link tree that's got all of the all of the crap on there. Um, but it, with as social media advanced, it went from wanting text to wanting photos of you to wanting videos of you. It demanded more and more of you. And TikTok is the only one right now that offers real engagement because Elon Musk has killed Twitter. Instagram, it's, there's people there, but they don't like follow links to go buy books for the most part. Mm -hmm. So a year ago in August of last year, August of 2022, I joined TikTok after everyone told me you have to get on TikTok. Like that's where the book reviewers are. That's where all the authors are. Like that's the only place left to reach people. So I created an account just trying to get, just trying to connect with other authors, trying to connect with other reviewers, just trying to put my face out there. Like, hey, I'm a cool guy you might want to talk to. And to try to introduce myself to a new generation of readers because TikTok is younger than certainly than Facebook. And, you know, and certainly then and so many people have fled Twitter and I started dabbling in it, but had zero experience doing any video stuff like I, that has never been my thing. I have no background and I'm not a YouTuber. I've never performed. I've never done anything on camera and had to spend months teaching myself how to do it, how to be yeah, on I camera, ask you about that to, in a minute, how to edit video. And it just started growing, growing and growing to the point that now a year later, far, 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 far more people have watched my TikToks than have read all of my books combined a thousand times over. It is, oh, surely. I am, I am, I, my videos of, I, I something like between 300 and 350 million streams of my videos on TikTok. Uh, and I, I don't know how many individuals that's reached. Like some people watch more than one video, but that dwarfs the total number of people who have read all of my writing in in novels and in and on cracked and everywhere combined. I am now primarily a TikToker by every metric and an wow. author second. That was never ever something I suspected would I never thought, never thought would happen. I completely agree with you uh, on the author front. And then just generally speaking, any company that's not a media company, in addition to washing windows or whatever they do, like won't be a company 10, 15 years from now. Cause like you said, uh, paying for advertising and stuff, what does your, cause you're, I, I wouldn't like, you're definitely in the like author niche and book talk, but you're also, you get far more eclectic than that. And you're kind of, I want to hear about your process of like, I've seen you make videos about all sorts of different things. They're always interesting because you're an interesting person. You have funny things to say and your sense of humor is great. But like, what, how do you find, create a video idea? I've always just been an information junkie. That's how I got into writing in the first place. Because again, my day job, for people don't know, I worked, I wrote nonfiction columns at crack.com. I was an editor there for 13 years from 2007 to 2020. Um, so there, that was constantly just constant research and constantly having social media up and constantly having Reddit up. So I've just always been a sponge for trivia and that's what actually got me the job at Cracked. Like I having an instinct for just weird facts and just constantly absorbing weird things and, and watching things and having, having some kind of an instinct for what's interesting or what people will find interesting. So that skill has always been what 
my writing presence has been about going to you know, like the late nineties when I started writing articles, you know, online. Um, and it was at that point, it's just a matter of trying to distill it into a TikTok link. Because again, I thought that wasn't a thing before I was actually on the platform. I thought it was just dancing like girls, like mm -hmm. lip syncing to, to songs. I didn't realize that TikTok, for example, was heavily pushing people to make longer videos. So like their monetization program, it doesn't pay unless it's over one minute long. And on TikTok, one minute is a long time. But the stuff that I do that's in the three to four minute range, it pushes it very, very hard because it's trying to be longer form. And they must have metrics to say that's better for advertiser engagement or something because they desperately want longer form content. So that wound up working out perfectly like i think i showed up on the platform right when they wanted more people to do what i could do which is summarize some interesting story or fact in a couple of minutes not in 10 seconds but in a couple minutes and then to hopefully make it funny and and you know reward having spent the two and a half minutes which again in tiktok length that's the equivalent of a movie that's like 17 hours long like to ask oh, yeah, somebody to watch a, a tiktok that's three and a half minutes uh, but that is, but the ones of mine that do the best, it's the longer stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, I've been on TikTok for a little while and seen some success on there. And I think that if I was going to analyze your page and point out what, what I think maybe one of the reasons that you're so successful on there is, uh, I mean, for one thing, you're, you, you're very good at speaking, obviously. I mean, you know how to, um, funny and interesting, you know, communicate verbally to an audience. But I think another one of the things that you're doing really effectively on TikTok is a lot of your videos, um, you're using the uh, green screen effect on a lot of Almost them. All. And, and, um, so you're doing a combination of a couple things. And one thing is that the talking head is very important on TikTok. Like your face in the video is extremely important. Unless what you're shooting is one of the most interesting things you could possibly see. You know what I mean? Obviously, there are outliers there. But I think another thing you're doing is that you're usually it's your head and you're talking immediately. And then you've got like a picture of something interesting behind you and so that when someone's scrolling through and it's mostly just talking heads talking about stuff but then there's that little kind of like interruption when it gets to your video when you've got something interesting you immediately start talking every it's impossible not to be interested in what's going on in this video now you know because it's like just something it's, interesting behind him yeah, yeah and not only that but it you have it's almost like jason's making a promise to the viewer that they're about to learn something interesting. We're talking you know, about it, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 a very quick response because initially with TikTok, when I was on there a couple of years ago, the big thing was like, you have to make this video as short as you fucking can. Like, it better not be over six seconds. It better not be over seven seconds. If it is, it's that. doomed. It's never going to do well. And then like Jason was saying, though, over time, TikTok was like, okay, it looks like we're competing with we're not competing with instagram we're not competing with facebook we're competing with netflix and we're competing YouTube. with youtube and they so, want a market share right and so it's like and i think there's this misconception that like everybody's attention spans are getting like goldfish short and i don't think it's like quite like that i think what what it is is like we're 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 becoming a more of a generation of efficiency like we want everything distilled down into its most efficient informative parts and i think tiktok is doing a really good job at that and that's why 
you know, these three to four to five minute videos are doing really well, not just because the algorithm is pushing it out, but because people are watching those, you know, like the, the best performing YouTube videos are like between six and 10 minutes long, you know, unless it's like a three hour, like retrospective of Mega Man or something, which people right. just put on. The but those, some of those podcasts that are hours long, it's millions of views, yeah, you know, the three but, hours long. So people really like long form content. I agree. Yeah. But um, with, with TikTok, I mean, it's, um, it's it's a weird thing because Jason, I'm sure that you've encountered this too. I mean, you never really know like what you're making is going to kind of like pop off, you know. Like sometimes, like, what do you think about that? Have you have you experienced that? First of all, when I tried when I started my TikTok, I tried doing it without my face because I, again, I do not like people looking at me. I don't want people. I do not want to be recognized in public. Like that is not my thing. That is not my goal in life. Uh, and they they kill those videos. It, they won't let them. They won't show them to anyone. It's like no, because so I would try having just the picture like you're talking about, and then it's just my voice talking about the thing. No, it's yeah. like the algorithm scans for a face or a dog's face. And if you're if you're like you <laughs> said, if you're looking really at funny. something, if you're looking at something incredible like a car is exploding off of a cliff, that that'll do it. But it otherwise it wants a face. And so as soon as I started putting my face in the video. Uh, you know, on, off it goes, which is not, was not good news <laughs> to me, but it's like, Hey, this is how it works. So, you know, whatever social media algorithms are, you are a unique form of psychological torture. If you're not used to them, <laughs> because I've been making my living on this with cracked anyone who had a website where you're publishing content of any kind, you had to learn how these algorithms work because back then it was Facebook or Reddit and they all have their own system, and they are all highly randomized. And anyone listening to this, if you are trying to get your TikTok account off the ground, and you're not understanding why some videos do well and others don't, even though they're the exact same video or or whatever, they are randomized by design because they don't want any company to learn the formula and then just automate it. So there's a random number generator element and you can look at my, go to my video page. I'm Jason K. Pargin on TikTok and also all of the other platforms. That you'll look and you'll see the pattern of videos where I'll have three in a row that did exactly 23,000 views. Like it's exactly. Yeah. That's a random algorithm award. It's, it's detecting how many people to roll that content out to. It has nothing to do with watch length, likes, shares, you can have all of those numbers can be sky high and it can still spike the video because there's an element of randomness to it. I have posted videos that immediately died. Like they went out to 500 people and stopped. I just deleted the video, posted it again three days later and had it take off like a rocket. Mm -hmm. Same video, same, same hashtag, same preview image, same time of day. It is a random number generator to an extent. Now, obviously, quality matters. Right. Just about you that. can maintain perfect quality for every single video and have wild swings because that's the system is designed to do that for the exact same reason a slot machine is programmed to reward you at certain specific intervals because they never want it to feel like I push this button, it makes traffic come out. They want an element of randomness because that is what is addictive. If you had a slot machine and you pulled the lever and every time you pulled it, it just gave you a nickel, that would be the least popular slot machine in the <laughs> casino. 
yeah. like because it's like well this is just a job like i'm <laughs> right. i'm i'm getting like i'm feeding it you know a penny and it gives me a nickel i'm making like four dollars an hour doing this like this sucks i'm on vacation you want the risk yeah right the, the, the addiction centers in the brain light up with randomness so YouTube, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Back when people used to try to make money on that, I guess some people still do. They have this thing where they want you to constantly be terrified that your next thing is going to bomb. And you can put four hours of work into a TikTok and post it, and they will just spike it for no reason. And you will you can go to support threads on Reddit or elsewhere where people have TikTok, TikTok accounts trying to figure out. They're like... This video, it, what's wrong with it? it? It's there's no nudity in it. There's no cursing. I, I, is there yeah. is there a word there that the algorithm didn't like because it didn't even show it to like the initial test audience to see if it would go viral. It didn't show it to anybody. It showed it to thirteen people and then cut it off. It's like that's that's by design. It Keeping randomly it randomly assassinates some of your work and just kills some of your babies in the crib. Uh, just to keep you on your toes and just to keep you insecure and to make it so that you never feel like, well, I'll just post once a day or I'll post once a week because I know I'm going to get enough traffic. It's like, no, we may, not, we may not give you any traffic on this next one. You need to be constantly scared and constantly trying to up your game because it's a slot machine. That's why, I mean, for my philosophy on it has really kind of evolved as I've been posting on there. Um because I went through a period um, where I was really anxious all the time about how many views I was getting on my videos because it was, uh, you know, it was tied to <laughs> my self-worth, my identity, my career, my my ability to make money, uh, stuff like that. Um, and then I kind of, I don't know, I kind of got to a point where I was I, along the same lines of what you're talking about here, where I was kind of like, you know what, this seems to be kind of a machine. And it seems to be like this thing that like, I can kind of set myself up for success in a few different ways. But ultimately, this is kind of like this random thing that is like, smarter than I am. So I think like what I need to do, and this is my advice for anybody who's listening that wants to make uh, content on the internet, make sure first and foremost, that it's, it's something that you enjoy making it's something you are interested in it's something that you enjoy watching after you've edited it like put yourself into it and and don't make it like this job or like this kind of like cold thing you feel like other people want to watch or something like that because then you're going to be constantly chasing stuff whereas if you put out something that's entertaining to you and it's something that you've been wanting to talk about or something that you're passionate about you can really have start having fun with the edits and it can actually be kind of like a, a cool experience just making the thing and then you throw it out and like yeah i mean it could do i've had stuff that's like i made it in uh, i've literally made a video in like two and a half minutes and it's gotten like four million views and then i've made i've spent five hours on a video that's gotten 2500 views which is still a decent amount of people watching something relatively but compared to four million it's peanuts but um you know it'll save you a lot of anxiety um, and a lot of like <laughs> negative self-talk, <laughs> I suppose. Like if you just kind of, and it's a lot easier said than done, obviously, but um, ironically too, that's the content that people seem to stick to the most is stuff that, you know, the, uh, and the audience is smart. Like they can tell when you put your heart into something, you know, they can tell when you're also interested in what you're talking about. And that stuff seems to do pretty well on the whole. So I know that's kind of rambly, but um, I think about this stuff all the time, you know? Well, no, I, and I, so many young people probably listening to this or just, just in general 
like inspired to be an influencer as their job. And I can't yeah. imagine a more stressful job because yeah, it's not of, like, yeah. oh, it, it's not like, oh, today's traffic is only half what it was yesterday. It's like, oh, today's traffic dropped by 98% over yesterday. Yeah. It, it's you have no idea how wild the swings are. And you can have a stretch just like at a slot machine where it's like, man, this is four hit videos in a row. Yeah, I finally figured it out. The yeah. world loves me. And then you got then you got a dry stretch coming, and then you realize, oh, it's the same as flipping a coin. You can have a hot yeah. streak, but it's an illusion. Their system rotates you into the for you page for a week and then will rotate right. you out. And it literally does not matter what you produce. Oof. It's going to spike it for that yeah. next few weeks. So you will start to because again, it's stressful enough for me, and I'm extremely old i've been doing this since they invented He's social media it, 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 it's it like a better complexion it, than me or chad i know <laughs> it's it cracked we've been doing this since like the day they invented facebook and having to spend every day because again we were making money only off ad revenue if if these referral sites didn't send us traffic we weren't going to be able to pay the bills so it wasn't just like feeding our own egos it's like we can't keep the lights on unless we figure out what facebook wants and so it's like what title of the article do they want what thumbnail image do they want what is it you know because they're and, and keep in mind these companies do not reveal their algorithms it's top secret because again they don't want anyone to be able to solve it mm -hmm. so there's this thing where there's like superstitions because it's like, oh, you know, like, for, for example, go to YouTube and watch thumbnails from like the last five years. And we're got like a big face up of the guy with his mouth open. Like, yeah, no. and it's, well, that's them figuring out that apparently what YouTube's thumbnail algorithm wants is a big face with a big expression on it with its mouth open. And you'll see channels where every thumbnail is this big, stupid face with his mouth open yeah. because they've. They're so scared to do anything but that because out of fear that the algorithm will punish them. Well, that's somebody doing it as their full-time job. To be a young person and you're just trying to express yourself or you've got some of your identity or self-worth tied to this, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. <laughs> I, I, would, I would discourage them from that because it's one thing if you're doing it to pay the bills and it's just – two companies working with each other, you know, we're, we're a corporate outlet trying to figure out what this other corporation wants in their presentation so that they will send us traffic to be somebody who's 16 yeah. and trying to earn self-worth and to yeah. feel the love of strangers or to feel value in your life and validation. And you're at the mercy of these algorithms. Like you're sitting there thinking, Oh my gosh, this, this photo, uh, you know, should I, should I have my legs in the photo? Like, will that get better clicks or should I do it? Is that too, you know, is, is that too weird if I do that? If I, uh, I can't imagine that that's healthy because it's not healthy to do it just as a job. I can't imagine that it's healthy when your own like sense of your own feelings of validation are tied to that. I can't imagine because these corporations do not care about you. They don't no, care if, if no, tweaking their algorithm no. causes thousands of teenagers yeah. to commit suicide. They yeah. do not care. 
That's the most common. Um, like if you ask a kid these days, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? YouTuber is the com- most common uh, answer mm-hmm. to that question now. And I can oh. only imagine how uh, stressful that would be. Now, do you think that it's more driven by the algorithm and how that's built? Or do you think that the algorithm is truly good at learning what actually works and thus why you should have a face in the thumbnail, whatever the thing is that week is based off of what's working or based off what's the algorithm decision-making that, that YouTube is building into it or a little bit of both. It's a combination of both. And this is one of the hottest debated subjects in the world because what Facebook will say, what YouTube will say, what all of them will say is this is just driven by people's preferences. Like, like Ah. there's no mystery here. (laughs) This is just that we're not manipulating this. (laughs) That for example, in, in 2017 or 20, yeah. In early 2017, after Facebook realized they had gotten Trump elected, uh, they, pivoted and changed their algorithm to basically shut down traffic to any website that wasn't the New York Times or some some big publication. And Cracked was one of the sites that they just they just cut us off. And keep in mind, we had millions of followers on Facebook. It didn't matter. They're like, even your followers will not see your posts. We've cut you off. And they killed the company. We we they shut down the office. We they laid everyone wow. off in December 2017 wow. because that just wiped out our traffic. Like then, it, yeah. like one day, our traffic just dropped by two thirds, and then that was it. And then you, we lost all the ad revenue because you fell below a threshold where it's it's not worth it to advertisers. They'll go to some bigger site. Totally. Like they flipped a switch and killed. This is why college humor doesn't exist anymore. This is why oh. funny or die doesn't exist anymore. This is why upworthy doesn't exist anymore. An entire ecosystem of content-driven websites died overnight because Facebook just flipped a switch and said, we've decided to kill an entire industry because we realized that our platform has become a misinformation machine. And it didn't help. Now their top 10 most popular Facebook pages are all Ben Shapiro like these ultra right-wing anti-vax stuff, all of it. It's just now just dominated by right-wing outreach. And again, Facebook would say, hey, that's just what that's what the people want. We're giving the people what they want. But it is not that simple. They have complex algorithms. This was the whole controversy behind with Elon Musk and Twitter, that he bought that site purely because he was enraged that his own posts were not getting traction in their algorithm. And so he bought the site and ruined it just to try to get more people to see his personal tweets. That was his entire motivation. But and, and it turned out that, again, once you dig under the hood in Twitter's actual algorithm for which posts they favor and what they suppress and what they hide in search results, yeah, there's thousands of layers of code and rules bias. and stuff. It, it's, it's witchcraft, and there's bias, and there's stuff that's – and again, they would say, well, no, we're just trying to keep it fair or whatever, but there's there are so many thumbs on the scales – that I'm sorry, I can look at my own for you page on TikTok and find stuff that someone decided to feed to me, and it's not based on my preferences. It's not based on anything I've watched before. It's not based on anything I've ever liked or shared before, but there's something at a corporate level that they are wanting to to push out. It's astounding how much of a hold it has on everybody. And you know, it's it's funny too, because it's like, it's not this binary kind of like, well, is social media good or bad? It's like, no, it's, I mean, it's the amount of careers it has kicked off, the amount of benefit it has provided so many people. people. I mean, like, and not, I mean, also, I mean, with, uh, I can only speak to my own experience, but like with book talk, like I've found community here. You know what I mean? Like I've found like a lot of friends. I've made friends uh, through this experience and it's like i think it's up to every person 
uh, individually to kind of like weigh the kind of like cost and benefit analysis with exposing yourself this much and um you know i mean i'm I'm curious though like do you think that do you think that maybe i'm trying to i'm trying to kind of collect my thoughts on this because i was i saw a youtube thumbnail today that was it was like a ted talk i didn't click on it but it was like big scary all caps like we need to talk about our social media addiction it's time to talk about it you know and um you know i'm wondering like do, do you think that the way that we use social media will become so normalized that we'll kind of like push ourselves past the like the the harm that it's doing like do you think we'll kind of like educate ourselves to the point of it not being as harmful anymore because we've done that with other innovations before too i mean like with with cars like we didn't have seatbelts in cars you know and eventually we put seatbelts in there and now the the deaths from car crashes have gone down i mean they're still high but you know the the benefit of having cars has outweighed the risk right. of dying cigarettes we learned it gives you cancer now right. we all yeah. oh wait <laughs> well, I mean, but, but smoking is way down, you know, smoking is, is, yeah. is way, way down. So like maybe I'm, I'm curious, Jason, like, you know, you've obviously thought about social media quite a bit. I mean, do you think that maybe we'll kind of phase into a more, for lack of a better term, like responsible usage of social media? Let me just set the context here. I don't have a career without the Internet and social media. It's right. for people who don't know my story. I published a book on the Internet back when that was not a thing. This was, again, the late 90s, early 2000s, when the Internet had barely reached its toddler form. And, you know, I had this book that I was publishing. There was no fiction writing scene on the Internet. There was no Wattpad. There were no there's no you know fan fiction platforms. None of that existed. I was just at a website and I was posting this this story one chapter at a time. And then eventually it got noticed and picked up by an indie publisher. And then against very long odds, I sold the film rights to it from, from there. So I'm someone who, if I had not had the internet, I would never have been an author. I had no background, no connections, no English degree, nothing. I had no ends to that industry. The internet like got me there. And then I now selling books on TikTok. If I didn't have TikTok, I probably would not continue to be an author after this next book deal. So I am a creature of the internet. I'm somebody pushing 50, you know, and I'm somebody who lives online. I'm online all day long. But when I grew up in, you know, again, I was born 1975. So in the you know, 70s, 80s, I heard back then everybody talking about how television is rotting your brain. And mm -hmm. we could say, well, of course, now we know that's silly. It, it's been fine. But has it? Yeah, right. It depends, looking, on, yeah, it depends on what like you're a, looking at. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the political radicalization hasn't come in the internet. It's come from watching Fox News or One right. American News. It's these right. old people who sit there and watch eight or 10 hours of cable TV a day, Oof. and it's all just crime, riots, the cities are falling apart, you know, Black Lives Matter riots, they're all coming after you. And it's just nonstop paranoia and all of this. So I don't know that the human brain ever, I think this, the media revolution came about too quickly for us, for our brains to adjust. Because you think about how fast that landscape changed from TV is brand new and everybody has three channels to cable comes along and everybody has 50 channels to expanded cable and satellite and everybody has hundreds 
to the internet where you have literal infinity. Every show on demand, every movie on demand, plus YouTube, plus Twitch, plus like the explosion in the amount of media available to the average person hasn't doubled or tripled or gone up a hundred times. It's gone up a billion times. Right. Like, like there was a time when I grew up, you know, in the house at that moment, you have maybe a paperback book that you bought, maybe a comic book that you bought. You know, you could maybe go get a magazine and then on your TV, you had three channels and you did, had no control over what they were showing. Like the, the kids out there, do you understand? You had to watch whatever they were broadcasting. We didn't even have a VCR. Like we had no ability to record shows and watch them later. If if you walked out of the room and you missed a scene, that was just gone forever. It, it You know, maybe they'd show it as a rerun a year later, but otherwise, no, you just missed it. There's no pausing. And then you had a radio, which was always like you had the local radio station, and maybe you could get the next town over their radio, and that was it. So the amount of media available to you at any given time, you may have had like five things you could have. Am I going to read my book? Am I going to read my comic book? Am I going to read my magazine? Am I going to watch a you know a golf game on TV because there's nothing on? Else. You know, yeah. it's Sunday afternoon. It's 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 golf and like some old black and white movie or whatever, and that's all that's available to you. Where now you have literally infinite media yeah. of any kind, whether it's a movie, whether it's, it's an anime, whether you want to watch, you know, talk, listen to talk radio or watch a long documentary about a video game or fall into a rabbit hole of conspiracy nonsense or hate <laughs> nonsense and, and white replacement theory and, and all of that, you know, white genocide stuff. It's not just that there is a video about, you know, why you need to be more racist there's a million of them. Like community. you can just submerge yourself in that stuff forever. So I think it is not alarmist or weird to suggest that the human brain is not adjusted to that because that is very recent. Right. And we certainly didn't evolve to have this much input and this much knowledge of everything that's going on. And I think it creates a unique kind of stress and anxiety that we don't know how to combat because it's not it's not been around long enough. And if you try to warn people about it, it sounds like you're being alarmist or being anti-technology, but it's like, no, it's just new. It'd be the same thing if they changed the speed limit. So everybody can go 200 miles an hour. They invented a new type of engine on the highway. You can go, you can go, go 250 miles an hour if you want. Like it'd be very reasonable to say, okay, human reaction times are not good enough to drive that fast. <laughs> we we, we the, the technology yeah. it's great that the technology can make our cars go that fast but the drivers we're not we can't process information that quickly where it's kind of the same thing. It's very reasonable to say that it is wonderful that we have all this access. I would not go back. But we'd spend very little time thinking in terms of okay, are you training yourself on how to process this, how to manage it, or, or how to limit your exposure to it. Because there's not really a framework aside from parents who like limit screen time, but mm -hmm. how many adults limit their own screen time? I don't, I don't, right. limit, mine. I don't limit mine. So I, I think yeah. there's, there needs to be a culture of learning how to manage this and control it and to be sensible about it that right now doesn't exist because it's too new. I think it exists in a sense of, um, like if there's a conversation that's starting to get off the rails and somebody gets into there and is getting really worked up over something there, there does seem to be a certain kind of like, you know, go touch grass. Like you've been on the internet for too long kind of sentiment, but I don't think that it's, 
I think it's more, it's almost more of an insult than anything. It's like, you know, like you're chronically online, you need, you need to like go outside and get some air, you know? And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, it, it could be a start maybe, uh, but I think that um, you're mostly right here. I mean, yeah, the, I like your analogy about the, the car going 200 miles an hour, actually. I don't think I've yeah. heard put better than that. I think that's a really solid formal education I feel, would be I mean, great because <laughs> like i definitely feel like that sometimes i feel overwhelmed i feel like um i've, I've taken on so much uh and there's, there's i'm seeing so many i've got all these books to read and these video games to play all this content to make uh, all these opinions to have all these other opinions of from other people to process uh, how i feel about the opinions that other people have that and then uh, how other people feel about my opinions about how other people have opinions about the opinions that i have and it's just oh like this constant like everybody's takes and and that's on like a good day you know like god forbid something you know re- like just outrageous and and intense is happening in the world every fucking three right. months and cat know videos I mean? need their due too you know and the cat videos need to be here and they will be forever like yeah that- uh i have a question kind of in that note um on the element two questions one and the second one will get us back to to zoe a little bit but sure. first one i would love to hear your opinion because i'm sure you have one on <clears throat> and you don't have to go super deep into it if you want but i would love to hear your opinion on how ai is going to change the authoring world uh oh, in, the, in the near future and because uh, you're a pretty tech savvy guy and i feel like a lot of authors are maybe um, either a little bit older or just kind of divorced from the technology side of things, but you're a tech guy and an author, so I'm sure your opinion is interesting. And then two, um, kind of on media, this is going to kind of a reach for a a transition, but um, is there any hope of any other forms of media for old Zoe in the future? So two questions, go for it. I don't think it's a secret to say that they've because I sold I sold the film and TV rights to Zoe in, immediately as soon as the first book was written and that's cool. been in development as a TV series. I don't think I can say what uh, streamer it's with, but it, it doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's going to be a show. It, it, lots of stuff is in development yeah, all the time, option. but it, uh, it that all got stopped with the strikes because mm-hmm. it takes the writer and the showrunner has to be the, to pitch it and that's crossing a picket line. So with them the strike being over, I don't know if they immediately go back to pitching it or if that's been put on hold. With TV and film stuff, I've learned you just you just don't know because you're not you're not in on those meetings for the most part. Sometimes I am, but for the most part, it's just there's always meetings happening and it kind of doesn't mean anything until they commit to paying for a pilot. So Got it. it could happen. It's kind of an expensive show. I get that that's, I know this is a time of belt tightening. They've canceled a ton of stuff. I, of course, think it would make a great TV show. Uh, they can make a great streaming series. But I'm, I'm I'm part of a giant pile of properties out there all saying the same thing. And I think they're so scared of doing anything that's not a really like existing lucrative property, like a book that sold 10 million copies versus a book that, you know, is as popular, but not, it's not going to make it, you know, a a number one series. Like it would have to carry it itself. So, uh, but that said, they're inventing new streaming services all the time. I like to think that eventually one would come along. (laughs) Same thing with John Dice. People always ask me if there would be another John Dice at the end series or, or, another movie or another you know a streaming series or something meetings happen constantly because it doesn't cost anything to have a meeting Hmm. but it just doesn't mean anything until somebody says all right we will pay 
to shoot to shoot an episode. The AI stuff is weird because if there's somebody out there who just wants to watch, listen to a story or read a story or watch a story, that's just kind of paint by numbers. They know what they like and they just want something that's kind of on in the background. I think AI can crank that out. No, no problem. Like, you know, AI could probably write you a decent Spider-Man sequel. The way they, they write those movies is so close to a mechanical process anyway, uh, that I don't know that you would make that you would notice a difference, but it's not going to displace if you're if you're an author and your writing is indistinguishable from the stuff that the robot spits out, <laughs> then that's kind of just the economy doing doing what it does. I think the entire point of art is that you're getting the viewpoint of another human being and you're stepping inside the head of another human being and you are learning something about the world and their personality that comes across. Uh, that is the reason art exists so having ai art is like having a restaurant that serves you pictures of hamburgers <laughs> it's like well this satisfies a different need like if i just want to look at a picture of a hamburger this does satisfy it but it's not a restaurant it's not doing the thing it, it doesn't nourish me the way it's not food and that's art that's not that's not from a person doesn't do what art does it's supposed to be like oh you know, you, a, a Jackson Pollock painting is not just a bunch of, you know, splatters of paint. It's, oh, this is, this could only have come from him. This is this guy's mind transferred to a canvas. And so if you ever have an AI that could write, you know, a perfect Blood Meridian sequel, like, like it could analyze Cormac McCarthy's phrasing, it could analyze, you know, certain terms he uses. But it can't take his specific diseased brain and and bring you something like the whole thing is you're reading something that only one man on earth could have written. Right. It's like and an act came, of self-expression. It came from somewhere deep inside him. And that is 100 percent of what makes it interesting. Having an AI that gives you a book that's kind of the same phrasing, kind of the same format. And it's like, oh, the AI knows not to use quotation marks. It's like. It, if you just want that as a curiosity, that's fine, but that's not that's not doing the same thing. It's it's not it's not displacing. It should not replace even one sale of a Cormac McCarthy novel. That the the stuff the robot turns out should not, you know, he he should not lose even one sale to it. In theory, uh, I just don't think that's how art works. There are certain things that can be automated, but you know restaurants still have human cooks in the back. They don't have a machine doing it because it still needs the touch of a person. Food is like that. And art is like that too. I'm curious though. I mean, like with a lot of the time, kind of like what you were talking about, kind of at the, at the top of what you were just saying there. I mean, a lot of the time people are just throwing on an episode of Bob's burgers and playing Xbox. And they're just, it's not really like they're sitting and giving their entire attention to something. No entertainment. And, and then also with, you know, if, if you want to kind of like go down the food analogy route too, uh, you know, I've, I'm guilty of, uh, I don't even call it guilty, but like I've done it so many times where I've like gone through the Taco Bell drive through and just kind of like mindlessly ate it while I was driving, you know? And like, like I think one of, maybe one of the worries with AI is that 
it's going to end up becoming like this thing that's like it might be distinguishable to somebody that's really focusing in on it but what if a lot of the things that are being put out are for the purpose of not quite i'm trying to pass like, the art touring test <laughs> yeah maybe like maybe like like what if the the main concern here is that it will saturate enough of the market to take away from the people that are really creating stuff like that's all of human progress like mm -hmm. i'm like this coffee mug like there was a time when somebody would have had to spend 10 hours carefully crafting the ceramic by hand and putting right. it into a kiln by hand and then this thing was stamped out by a machine on the other side of the world that cranks out a billion of them at a time but it does that so that everybody can have coffee mugs and they're very inexpensive mm -hmm. and that you're not you know and that and that did not consume an entire day of some poor bastard's life having to work over a hot fire mm -hmm. to fire a, a one single con like just in terms of supplying the world with things they need so likewise you know i've got a cliff bar here one of those nutrition bars that they taste awful and they're also not good for you but if i <laughs> don't feel like making even a bowl of cereal like even if that is too much effort for me i can eat that and it stops me from being hungry for the next few hours if there's some fine chef out there enraged that well how can anybody ever want to eat my pasta when this factory can crank out cliff bars at a rate of right. a billion a second it's like man you got to understand if you're if the stuff you're cooking at your restaurant doesn't provide anything beyond what people can get from a cliff bar then they're going to go for the cliff bar cuz it's it's 2 bucks and your rest your meal costs $50 and it's a pain in the ass to go stand in line and sit there. Like you're you're serving two different needs. Every every automated process, you know, you could say the same thing. It's like I don't. I'm glad that we've automated the harvesting of crops. I don't want people out in the hot sun having to do it by hand. That was an innovation. You can feed more people. You can produce more food. The world gets better when we're producing more stuff, and the world has gotten better over the you know the last couple hundred years because factories can crank out stuff that people need in vast quantities, whether you're talking about furniture or medicine or whatever. And somewhere out there, there is a cobbler saying, well, yeah, but your those shoes that you bought that were just cranked out of a Chinese factory, they're not like the ones I lovingly make by hand. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, I don't need that i just need something to keep my feet dry so right. I, it's going to be the same thing if the if the world's appetite for content is so great hmm. that the humans can't produce it fast enough and we need it to be automated because we just want something we just want some pretty colors that play on our screen like a screensaver and we don't need some sort of deeper truth or whatever that speaks to us then yeah, AI can probably fill that void, but I'm struggling to think of, you know, because like, what do people watch on Netflix? Well, they used to just watch Friends, you know, because episodes they'd seen, you know, The Office, episodes they'd seen 10 times, they just throw it on in the background. But what attracted them to it? Hmm. It's not a mechanical process. It's these specific people. It's Steve Carell. It's John Krasinski. It's these human beings who they enjoy being in their presence. They enjoy listening to them talk and watching them interact. It is the human factor is 100% of what is good from that. And I don't think 
and AI can generate a script that, for example, with comedy, like it has to be unexpected and what, as we just talked about earlier about how it's constantly changing, because what surprises people and what is unexpected evolves almost on a daily basis. Hmm. And AI is not going to be able to do that. That's only something another person can do because the other people exist in the world in a body and know what the human experience is like. And that's where comedy comes from. It's like, hey, we've all done this thing. We've all had this experience. And, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's observational comedy can only observe real life because he himself lived in the world and the computer doesn't. So it can imitate it. It can it can put together phrases that kind of sound the same, but in terms of touching that thing that that lights up your brain and makes you feel like, you know, I enjoy listening to this person tell his funny stories, I don't see how an AI can do it. It can steal somebody else's content and remix it, but it's it's just stealing somebody else's stuff. It's not it's not doing its own it's not doing its own thing. I mean, couldn't you yeah, well, just program you. sorry, couldn't you just at, at some point in the future, uh ten you know depending on how exponentially ai advances couldn't you theoretically just program the ai to avoid uh seeming like it's not a person you know what i mean like i mean couldn't you program I mean, it Evan's to... talking about data set yeah <laughs> like well, the size what, what, of the data what i'm set. saying what i'm saying though is i mean like at some point won't it cross a threshold where there's yes. no way to tell the difference at all Absolutely. Because, you know, like, right, I mean, I just listened to on YouTube, I listened to a, a voice recreation, and it was Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna talking to each other mm -hmm. with AI. And it was, I mean, it, it was really close. I mean, it wasn't, it was, it was so close that if, if I had stumbled upon it without having clicked on a thumbnail that told me it was AI, I would have been. I might have probably been like, oh, this sounds like it could be AI, but there would have been at least a few minutes there where I was like, wow, this is a conversation between Alan Watts and Terrence McKenna, who I don't think ever actually even met each other. Uh, yeah. But I, it was it I was think spooky. to add what you're saying, Evan, um, you know, I definitely think that you're right. Like technology will get to a point that it is hard to tell the difference. But I think to Jason's point, uh, which is kind of what he was just saying um, earlier, which is a lot of times people go to art to be experiencing that art specifically because it's the self-expression of another person and that's where they find value in it. Totally, so I agree with totally, that statement, yeah. but I also agree with Evan that it'll be hard to tell the difference at some point, though I don't think we'll people will never stop seeking out art made by another person because it does speak so directly to them. They'll, they'll make sure that it's another person, but I think that it will certainly be a level of both because I see a world where you have a machine that you can just say, hey, I'm looking for a romantic story that's about, um, you know, a guy's best friend and, something. you know, you can make it and then it gives you that story right away. And they're like, cool, that's but that's a person going in for entertainment, not for to art. Jason's point, though, also about the coffee mug, though. I mean, that was a really good point because, you know, like we we have tried so many times, I feel like to stop progress to stop technology to and it, it just steamrolls right over it just keeps on going like mm -hmm. it, it's gonna happen jobs. It's, it's going to happen well that's a whole different conversation but like the chat yeah. and i kind of disagree <laughs> on. but but i mean um i mean i kind of do agree with a lot of that sentiment jason in, in that you know i think it is something that it, it, it almost like won't be avoided we need to learn how to like live with it and recognize it and you know, I mean, it's, it's become a huge problem for publishers, you know, like uh, well, there was a big science fiction magazine that just had they had to shut down for like six months or something. I think it was Clark's World 
they had to shut down because they couldn't figure they had they didn't have the infrastructure to sort out what was ai and what wasn't and it was causing wow. a bunch of issues for their submission process for their magazine and they because they didn't want to post anything that was ai but they also were like well how are we supposed to know for sure you know like, right. they were getting swamped with junk is that's the issue is the volume and that's right. the issue with the the, the 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 immediate danger is that the internet would would because it, the stuff could be spit out spit out at a in a microsecond you can have yeah. just a flood of material that absolutely swamps the human-made stuff, and then it, it pulls your search results. Now, I personally think that, for example, like Google has motivation to make sure that their search results are not ruined by AI. They need people to depend on Google. Like they have an in incentive to find tools to filter it out. Um, you know, and with that magazine, like they were being inundated, their inbox is just being swarmed with just spammed, but it's just basically spammed junk. But you have to develop a process to like confirm that it's a human sending it in and do you know who they are and all of that. I think they will find ways to to adapt to that the same way like my Gmail inbox does a really good job of filtering spam and spam yeah. almost made email unusable 10 years ago and they've actually actually adopted really, really well. But it, one example, okay. And in the world of doing stuff like we did at Cracked, where you're writing kind of like we would have essays on some sort of deep subject or some observational entertainment subject, but then you would have timely coverage that is very kind of rote. For example, summaries of trailers that come out was a big thing because some people wouldn't watch a movie trailer. So you would get the trailer that would come out, you know, the new the new Avengers movie or whatever, the new Thor movie, and then they would want you to write 500 words like things you noticed in the trailer basically summarizing it uh recapping tv shows is a huge thing they, mm -hmm. it's it's a, it's an entire like vulture has an entire section like this is an entire part of the internet that's just recapping what happened in a show and making observations about it. it's like well we found out what happened to loki that went into the other dimension and he came back and da 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 there's a lot of that and you go to espn how many of their articles are just summaries of what happened in a football game and there's right. no like Lots, spark yeah. of personality there. There's no like, you know, there, it's not in the voice of a, of a particular author. It's just, you know, the Chicago Data. Bears lost their 37th straight game on da da da. And he passed for this many yards. Lots of that can be automated. And I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing because lots of writers who got into the internet wanting to write and be creative found themselves in miserable jobs where they have to write literally 50 articles a day spending five minutes on each 500 words summarizing this trailer here's two paragraphs summarizing this outraged tweet that happened just and it's very automated and it's very the equivalent of working in a field and just harvesting crops by hand because it doesn't require a spark of creativity it requires very basic skills to word things succinctly and observation and all of that that is the kind of work that an AI can do. And if it's a kind of work that feels like it should be automated, if it can do it right. Now, obviously, if it's, you know, the whole thing with AI getting stuff wrong and nobody double checking it, that's a whole separate problem. Like that's an editorial problem. You should be checking everything before it hits the front page. But in terms of what is considered the most drudgery work in the writing world where you're just summarizing stuff that comes in or summarizing news events, or if there's a press release and you're just summarizing what it says, 
then yeah, that's the work that will go. It will be done by an AI, then hopefully checked by a person. And I think that's probably fine. Like again, some people will lose their jobs just as people lose their jobs when anything gets automated. But the idea is you move those people into stuff that only a person can do where they're actually able to use their creativity, God willing. You know, it's like, this is something the AI can't do. You know, this is something that requires your skill that you and your own personality. You can bring more of yourself into it instead of just having to basically crank out, just take the information and summarize it and just crank out throughout your entire workday. What a fascinating conversation. Yeah, it really is. Certainly more fulfilling. I hope your vision of the future and the use of AI is awesome. I, I really like that. You know, I can see some world where authors use them to like augment themselves, you know. Um, but I mean, uh, I use but, ChatGPT to like if I'm I use it as kind of like a thesaurus almost um, where but but because I can be like more specific, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm what's just the, like the, that thing on the boat that does this and I can have a conversation? Right. I, yeah, it's not yeah. like I'm I'm not like, hey, can you write me like a description of this room? Because I'm too lazy to do that or anything. That's not like what I'm doing. But it's just yeah, if, if I'm it's like it's like what are some some common uh, frames of roofs that were found in like this particular, you know, it's like and right. if I did, if I did that through a Google search, I could maybe find it, but I'll find all these stupid websites that are like, I was like Gothic kid. architecture. Like, yeah, and it's all this like really dumb stuff, but it's like with AI, it's like the thing knows exactly what I'm saying. It'll just pop me an answer like immediately. But mm -hmm. the thing that freaks me out about it sometimes is it's just like, all right, I'm just taking its word for it. You know, but I'm taking I'm doing that with the rest of the internet too. So yeah, maybe don't do like cancer research with ChatGPT. <laughs> well, but good like, thing I'm know, not doing a lot of cancer. Gothic research. architecture probably pretty good. <laughs> totally. There's the dystopian stuff about like people having an AI friend or an AI girlfriend or whatever, and it's like, well, that's just that would be sad. And it's like, well, do you want to be that person's friend? It's like, well, no, they're disgusting. <laughs> like, God okay. damn, Jason. <laughs> Jesus, he hits to the like, bone. Ice cold. Like, there's a lot of lonely people in the world. You don't want to go be their friend. Yeah. So if they have, like, an AI that will talk to them and share their interests and joke with them and listen to them and converse with them and, like, if you bring if, suicide yeah, roots down. Yeah, it's like, I, th th this is coming about because the demand is there. You know, like what you're using ChatGPT for, there's too much information out there and too many hard, like you need somebody to distill it for you to do the searching that would take you all day. And then it can instantly grab it and say, here, you here's your answer. Like there's a, the world is too complicated for a human brain. So we need additional brain power because again, please understand the the main uses of AI are not in writing books no, and articles no. and in making terrible art where they have too many fingers the uses code. of ai are in solving incredibly complex problems like figuring out how to replant a forest to you know factoring in all of the massive amount of data about rainfall and the grading of the, yeah. the soil and the supply and the, chain the management and stuff. of the soil yeah. and yeah and exactly where to put the seeds and all of that like the thought work that there aren't enough people available to sit down and do it. That kind of analysis to solve these incredibly complicated problems, environmental problems, you know, production problems, everything that you don't have enough available people to work through it. You, it's it's brain work that needs that somebody needs to do. It's engineering work, and we don't have enough available brains to do it. It's too complicated. So you're building something that can work through that for you. That's what AI 
it does for you. That's why it will like this is why every country is trying to have AI first and like truly effective AI that can actually do real, real human thinking. Because once you have that, you can solve so many problems uh, in the world. And there's so many people that need help from an expert and they cannot pay for an expert. But if there's an AI that's effectively an expert, they now have one available to them for little or no cost. Well, what is what is every innovation, if not the erasure of tedium and the uh, installation of something efficient? You know, I mean, like that's what it, that's what we're doing all the time. You know, I mean, like we don't want a bunch of people, like you were saying before, like working in fields. So what did we do? We innovated that. We figured that out. So we didn't have to do that anymore. And now it's like, okay, so there's this job that was kind of a soul sucking job where it was just data entry, where you're just typing numbers into an Excel sheet for eight hours a day. And it's like, okay, well, I mean, that's kind of a crappy job. Like, what if we just gave that to um, a computer and it did it in two, two and a half minutes, you know, instead of eight hours, um, granted that, that was my last, that was my last real job I had in 2006. When I got hired to work at Crack to write comedy, I was working in an insurance company doing data entry because back then people would fill out their claim forms on paper hmm. and we would get them. We had mountains of them and boxes, you know, millions a day. We would have processes or processing for Medicare. And so I would have the stack of claims that I'm typing in just, you know, because back this is in the ancient days of the mid 2000s. And because it's a government agency, they did not have a way to electronically submit the, the claims themselves. They, a lot of them still came in on paper. And um, at the time, they were trying to upgrade to a system where we had a scanner. We could feed the claims in. It would scan them in. But then a human had to check them. But that's what I was doing with my time. But like I wasn't an author back then. I wasn't like, do you wish I was using my time to enter? claim data instead of writing these books and because it's like well that's just an unnecessary step like you're that was just pure mind-numbing tedium like like why why didn't you have them entering the data in directly into the system it's like well that didn't that technology didn't exist that job has since been automated away now they do enter it directly in the system doctors have a computer you see them with their little laptop it gets transmitted. So that job of mine where that data entry that job doesn't exist anymore because it doesn't have to I don't miss it like I got yeah. replaced by a robot. And that's the thing is if, if any of us who talk about how stressful the world is and it's overwhelming and all that, if we were to get in our time machine and go back and live in, I don't know, picky or 1940, 43, well, I guess not during World War II, let's say 1923, 100 years ago, the thing that would shock you beyond how bad everyone would smell is how much of your time is how much of your time would evaporate. Right. Because it yeah. takes so long to cook food. Labor it takes so devices. long to, <laughs> yeah. to shop. It takes so long to, if you want to research something, you're oh going, God. you're driving yeah. to a library and you're digging through their books and they don't have the, because the one you need has been checked out and they never returned it. So maybe the next town's library. Terrific. And you, everything you're trying to do, like when you need to pay your bills, you need to drive to their office and write, stand in line and write them a check at the counter. There's no paying your bills online. It, when you order something, you got to go find a catalog and it takes six to eight weeks to get there. Everything you said, catalog orders used to always say six to eight weeks on the TV commercials. That was always the, the time span. Like yeah. you were two months away from getting that stuff you ordered. There's no Amazon that immediately it just appears the next day. Like you would be shocked at how all of your spare time evaporated because every single little thing from washing your clothes to bathing, because most people didn't have showers in their homes. They had bathtubs. Every little thing you did would take 
10 times longer. That's the thing. Cause you would think, well, life is simpler back then. It, it, things move slower and I could have to, I could relax and not okay. so many, not inundated all steps. Like, no, you would get nothing done <laughs> because cooking dinner takes yeah. two hours. You're, yeah. you're making everything. There's no, there's no frozen dinners in your freezer. You're making everything from scratch. And you think, well, wow, yeah, that's what we need is fresh, wholesome meals. It's like, no, that's your whole day. You're peeling potatoes all afternoon. <laughs> Not yeah, the that world that I want to live yeah. in. <laughs> that's, that's a cool one. Yeah. I feel like. Well, as we wrap up here, Evan, do you got any final questions for him? Um, Jason, I'm curious if you could tell us what this other book you're working on is. Uh, I don't, if you can't, that's cool, but I am, I'm very curious. And because there is a free preview at the end of Zoe and the paperback of the last book. Uh, if this book exists, you're in the wrong universe. The paperback just came out. At the end of it, there are two chapters of the first two chapters of a standalone novel that comes out next year. Can you tell us the title? Um, it's called I'm Starting to Worry About This Black Box of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> that seems very different than your normal style. <laughs> just, the the, the, the preview chapters, like, and it's basically there is a guy who is a driver for a rideshare service who shows up and a woman is sitting on a large black box like the size of a steamer trunk. And she says, I will pay you a huge amount of money to take me across the country with this box. But cool. you cannot look in the box. You cannot touch the box. You cannot ask me what's in the box. Uh, and you cannot tell box? anyone where we're going. And you have to you have to leave all of your devices behind. And oh, it is it kicks off from there. So that is the first new, all new thing I've written since 2015, because I normally am known for these two series that I've been working on uh but i don't just want to write series for the rest of my life this is a standalone book idea i've had for forever and hopefully hopefully people who are fans of the the other books will be willing to to give it a chance this will be my last question um so have you thought of have you ever thought of writing something that's like very much outside the genre that you've been in uh like like a like a like a thriller cooking or book. like a not a cooking book <laughs> like, or um, like but like high fantasy secondary world or like science fiction like a space opera or something like that have you thought about writing any of that stuff or have you made some progress on your computer that you haven't like shown anybody uh well but no but like this the black box of doom book i just described that's not a horror novel that's there's no supernatural okay. elements okay. it yeah. doesn't take place in the future it's oh. straight the thriller okay. kind of satirical uh, thriller but go. a very it's a, like a dark clicking a ticking clock uh thriller but with it's it's very much one of my books if you're familiar sure. with my tone then you know the mm -hmm. tone of this book but i'm not committed to any one uh genre which is a, a problem like authors it's the same thing with tiktok you, you're better off if you have a very specific niche and I, yeah, that's why i asked about how you make your videos yeah and yeah and uh with an author same thing like you are much better off if you are a horror author because then you have contacts in the horror community you have horror publications you have horror fans and they are fans of yours if you're just all over the place so like the zoe novels are science fiction uh that is a real detriment and most authors don't do it but i get too easily bored so i may very well write a fantasy novel someday but it would have to be a time when i'm not trying to like my current book deal has me writing a book every year a fantasy novel cannot be written in a year 
Really like a fantasy write, novel, yeah. something where you spend seven or eight years developing the world. Right. And then you finally write it. Like even J.K. Rowling, like she developed Harry Potter for five years before she started writing the first book. She wrote, she'd spent, she had like file boxes of notes on the world. So you're telling, and, you know, them, telling us you're working on some worlds right now. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I would, love, those file I, would love to, I would love to have a schedule that allows me to do that, where it's yeah. like, I'm going to spend the next seven years of my life just dreaming up this bigger because that's what stephen king was trying to do with the dark tower that was the exact same thing he said that he's like i'm cranking out these novels every year but they're like it's just like a sketch he's like i would like to do a big my sistine chapel like a big story and that's his fantasy series but that was the thing where he got pigeonholed as a horror author early and had to get a bunch of bestsellers under his belt before he could come back and say okay now read my fantasy series because Obviously, the Dark Tower is a straight-up fantasy series, it's and a wild that's something and wacky that ride. yeah, and that's something that he he clearly loves. But he got it became known very early. Like, no, you're the horror guy. You're the master yeah. of horror. That's how we're marketing you. That's the only thing the fans want. And so, similarly, like he eventually got the itch. It's like, no, I want to dive in and create this vast, sprawling world, a fantasy world with its own language and its own everything. And I think lots of authors would love to do that but that is a luxury it takes time it's something you've got to work on on the side for if you don't i think you can tell i think fantasy fans want that they they yeah. need you know the magic system like everything there's got to be an in-depth lore and layers to it and a history that it's clear the author has all of that stuff in in mind but uh it's not something you just crank out i mean this is what bogged down george R. R. martin eventually there's like there's too much there's yeah. there's there's too much of it there and i don't think he can untangle it all i mean i think uh what, what i've seen when notice is that a lot of authors will do uh, pen names um so they'll do like they're kind of like horror names like i think um mm, change the brand yeah uh so, <clears throat> um so or you've got like uh uh kj parker who writes, uh, who is also Tim Powers, I think, or no, Tom, no, Tom Holt, I should say. Sorry, sorry, not Tim Powers, Tom Holt. Um, but I've seen that a little bit more often where it's like, okay, so if I'm going to do a different genre, I'm going to change my name. Uh, I think uh, Daniel Abraham, who does high fantasy, is James S.A. Corey for the Expanse books. Right. Uh, so it's like, it's a vastly different genre. And then um, uh, Robin Hobb, I think, with Megan Lindholm was doing like different stuff. Uh, oh, that's right. Um, I can't remember the exact stuff with Robin Hood, but if you were to like really branch out for something completely different and also knowing how much you value kind of like your privacy and stuff, which might, I think the cat's kind of out of the bag at this point. Yeah. That boat um, is sailed for sure. Yeah, I think it might <laughs> After 300,000 like, TikTok followers. <laughs> would you change your name though? If you wrote like a, um, like a high fantasy. Go back to changing your name. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see how that would be possible because again, if I just put out a book, like without my face marketing it, yeah, it sells yeah. 500 copies. Totally. Sure. That's it's why you because believe that's yeah. you, you have to understand. I'm not I'm not a superstar like you. My you go to the bookstore. You're not going to find a, a mountain of my books piled right inside the door where totally. you can't miss them, where it's like, you know, when J.K. Rowling What's her pen name for her crime novels? Robert Galbraith, I think. Like, even if you didn't know that was J.K. Rowling, when you walked in the door, there were literally a stack, yeah. a pyramid of, of those books. Yeah. So <laughs> the full force of the publisher pushing those out, printing probably 2 million copies of it, 
yeah. knew that was going to, because that's how in many ways books got sold. You see a mountain of them. It's like, oh, this must be a big deal. Right. I better stop and look at this. It must be pretty interesting. I'm not that I'm not at that level. Like the amount of marketing I do for my book sells like the bare minimum to allow me to write books full time, which by the way, is a remarkable thing. When you go to a bookstore, only a tiny fraction of those books are written by full-time authors like me. The yeah. rest of them are people writing them on the side. Those people have day jobs. They are journalists, they're teachers, they're professors, they're whatever. And then they write books in their spare time. For, to be able to be a full-time novelist is an achievement all its own. Yeah. You're at least but a I don't sell, star. Yeah, and, and I don't, but I don't sell millions of books. I'm not a multimillionaire. I like I sell enough books to pay my bills, but I'm, you know. I'm 48 years old. I'm going to, I need to save for retirement. Like I, <laughs> yeah, you understand? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Like you have to sell <laughs> a buttload of books to be able to function as an adult. And I, the amount of promotion I have, the amount of push that I do on social media is just enough. And that's me spending about 80% of my time on promotion, TikTok doing this and the other 20% on, on writing books. So I'm not at a level where like Stephen King, you know, he, he sells however many millions of copies of Carrie, he can then turn around and create Richard Bachman right. just as a lark. But those Richard and Bachman books sell. sold, yeah. they sold a few thousand copies until they put Stephen King's name on it. And then they instantly sold in the millions. But those books, because this is something he learned was that once the Stephen King brand wasn't on the book, nobody cared. It's funny because there were some reviews that were like, "This is uh, Stephen King wishes he could write this well" or something. Like yeah, <laughs> but I'm I'm really happy that you know we were able to have this conversation. And we were able to facilitate some of that very very necessary marketing that goes into all uh, on top of all of the work it takes for you to write these books, and they are awesome books, like excellent excellent stories. And anybody that's listening who has enjoyed this conversation with Jason. Chad and I both very much encourage you to read John's Eyes at the End, read Zoe Punches the Future in the Day. I've read like, every book this man has <laughs> authored, and it, except for the newest one, which I need to get myself a copy of. But like it, it's uh, they they are all so good. The voice is so unique. Like I've never read a book by an author that I was like, I never thought to myself, oh, this sounds like Jason, or or while reading your books, think Jason sounds like Pratchett, or you have your own like flavor that is very unique. And if uh, if you like. One of his books, I can say pretty confidently that you will love all of his books. Absolutely. It's a lot of reading time for you. Yes. <laughs> you, Yeah. This, so the new one is in the Zoe Ash series. Just to reiterate, the first one in that series is called Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits. The second one is called Zoe Punches the Future in the Dick. Those are both up on Kindle Unlimited. If you have that, they're free if you've got Kindle Unlimited. Otherwise, you could probably find a cheap used copy at a bookstore somewhere. I'll um, link to Amazon the, below. And then the new one is, of course, coming out on Halloween. As we said, it is called Zoe is Too Drunk for This Dystopia. And it should be out wherever you get books, out in ebook, audio, any format you want. Do you have a favorite um, place for people to go to? Like from your website, is where the best place for you to purchase them? Or is it Amazon? Or where's the, where do you make the most? No, I don't care how what what amount of money I make. It, I do. One, <laughs> one, if you have a brick and mortar bookstore in your town still, for the love of God, please go buy something from them or use Bookshop. They that's Bookshop is just a network of Bookshop.org is just a network of indie bookstores. Um, but I just know for a fact that 
probably, I think roughly 80 to 85% of my sales will come from Amazon. That's just the reality. I, it helps me a lot if you buy from a brick and mortar location. Once upon a time, we used to talk about Barnes and Noble as if it was the big monolith we were all trying to fight. It's like, no, support the indie bookstore. It's like, man, now, if you can, if you have a Barnes and Noble, if that's all you've Barnes got, and Noble. <laughs> yes, support it over Amazon because we're we could lose that. Yeah, I mean, right. once upon a time, you know, there's that. What, what's that Tom Hanks movie where where like the Borders bookstore is the big evil monolith oh, running the tiny? A, you've got mail, I think. And yeah. it's now it's like, man, we don't have Borders anymore. Even we don't have <laughs> B. Dalton. We don't. <clears throat> there's like one. I've got a books a million in my city, but I I don't think there's hardly anybody there. If you have any brick and mortar bookstore and you feel like getting out to to go buy it, but I please, they're all they all are running on very narrow margins, especially in a bad economy. Books are one of the first things that people stop buying when there's a period of inflation, anything like that. So yes, if you can support them, Amazon will be fine. But I also know most of you are going to get it from Amazon. The <laughs> audiobook is through Audible, which is owned by Amazon. It's just, that's the industry. Well, I'm really excited to read it. Uh, I'm really yeah, excited me too. for all of our fans to hit us up in the Discord, of course. Tell us what you think about these wonderful books. Jason, seriously, thank you so much for coming on. It's always, always a pleasure to speak yeah. with you on so many different topics, and we'd love to have you back, of course. Yeah, I look forward to you. Next time you come up with something, we'll definitely have you back. All right, cool, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.